Well, the refreshment that may be on the way for the mountain, maybe it's, uh, we can just expect that as well for our souls this morning as we enjoy the word together, yes? Let's enjoy the word together as part of our worship today in our honor of the Lord. If you'll take your Bible or your iPad or whatever you're using and let's go to the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. If you find the book of Psalms or Proverbs, the very next book to the right is going to be the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll ask you to land in chapter 5 this morning and if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Ron's ready to share a copy of God's Word if that is your need this morning. And in your bulletin as well, a little note page looks like this. If you'll grab that note page, uh, that is going to be helpful for you as well. And church family, even the quickest of glances at that note page lets you know that we are returning once again today to a study series that we put on hold for a season. We embarked on a verse-by-verse explore of the book of Ecclesiastes and And we were able to get up through chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes before we took a a planned hiatus. We broke from Ecclesiastes in the fall in order to be able to mark the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. We did the Sola series, if you recall. Does everybody remember that? Oh, good. Good, I'm glad. By the end of the Sola series, we were into the Thanksgiving holidays, and so we devoted some time to that in that special direction and then we came right out of that and found ourselves in the place of of the Christmas season and the month of December and so we stepped into the four-part series called the story and we all remember that right because we just concluded that last Sunday so today is is sort of like getting reacquainted with a good friend that we have not been with for a while We need to get caught up a little bit, and then we pick up with our friend right where we left off, almost as if we had never been apart. And I'm hoping that's what will happen. As we uh, seek to get caught up with the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, we're actually going to remember now that we are opening up the diary of a man who is on a desperate search, a desperate search to find what it takes to have a meaningful purpose-filled, significantly satisfying life that matters and makes a difference. Ecclesiastes is the diary that Solomon, Israel's great King Solomon, kept as he searched for a life that makes sense. This makes the book of Ecclesiastes important to each one of us. Not just because it's part of Holy Scripture, it's very important for that reason alone, but it's important because we want All of us want a meaningful, purpose-filled, significantly satisfying life that matters and makes a difference. I do, and you do, don't you? So so this book is important to us. it, It has value for us. But what makes Solomon's diary unique among Bible books is that Solomon gives us, by and large, the search for life's meaning from the perspective of one who leaves God out of the search. Do you remember this? Yeah? In fact, if you recall, Solomon has a favorite expression as he looks at life in the book of Ecclesiastes because he looks at it largely from a certain point of view. What is that point of view, church? Can you remember? Can you go back like three months or so and remember? What was that point of view? And under the... Yes! Yes, an under-the-sun perspective. 
You are so good. Man, you're good. You guys are great. In other words, a, a look at life without God in view. A mostly, not exclusively, but mostly a horizontal look at life. Life under the sun. And right from the opening verses of this diary, we hear this perspective. Remember again, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. Solomon hardly even gets going and he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher or the teacher, the collector of information. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Where, church? (laughs) Under the sun. It's an expression that appears nearly 30 times in this book. And what does life look like strictly from Solomon's under the sun perspective? Well, he tells us in these two verses, it's vanity. Now, that's a Hebrew word that means futile, void, dead end, not fulfilling, meaningless. Life under the sun, Solomon says, it's empty. It it, it goes nowhere. It's not satisfying. And this phrase, under the sun, is the key to understanding this book of Ecclesiastes. The book only makes sense if we remember that we are, re- we are reading the diary entries of one who is largely leaving God out of his life. Every now and then, Solomon's going to poke his head above the sun and give us a look at life from a Godward vantage point. But then just as quickly, he's going to dip back down under the sun and once again go off in a search for meaning in some other direction. So studying his search for a meaningful life really does become very helpful and valuable to us because we get to see what results when a person looks for joy and purpose and life without God, without a living personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We get to look at what life looks like from that perspective. Life without a spiritual dimension, without an eternal focus, from an under-the-sun only Perspective. Solomon gives us that, and he does that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's a very special and unique book that we get to share. Now, up through chapter 4, which is as far as we got before we took our break, Solomon has conducted a search into several places of life looking for a fulfilling, sense-making life. And he has turned, as you see there on the screen, but also there on your note page, he's looked into nature to see if, boy, if I just poured myself into nature, will I find a satisfying life there? The answer he discovers is, no, I won't. Well, how about acquiring lots of knowledge, being an information sponge? Will that bring meaning to my life? No, it does not. Well, what if I pursue a gratifying, self-focused life where it's all about me and all the pleasure that I can derive from this life? Will that satisfy? The answer is no, it will not. What if I pursue wisdom as opposed to being a foolish person? Will wisdom bring me satisfaction? No. Living for my children and my grandchildren, making my heirs the focus of my life, leaving them a lot of great stuff, is that going to bring fulfillment? No, it will not. How about if I try wringing meaning from the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of life, a time for this, a time for that, if you remember in chapter 3, will that bring satisfaction? It will not. How about finding your worth in your work? 
Your vocation, is that where you're going to find a satisfying, meaningful life? No, Solomon says you will not. And even justice and, and fairness, looking to be a, a, a person who's committed to that focus. I want life to be just and fair. Will that bring fulfillment? No way. Alas, all of these are ends or goals in themselves that prove vain and empty if that's all there is. In fact, what Solomon says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, pretty much sums up his search for a fulfilling life up to this point. Ecclesiastes 4, 2 and 3, he says, And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Man, that is depressing, isn't it? (laughs) That, That is a real downer, very, very bleak. But ultimately, this is how it is when meaning and purpose in your life are confined to a purely horizontal under the sun a place or arena. Yet there's tremendous value, again, for us in learning about this and walking with Solomon here because knowing what not to do, knowing where not to look for fulfillment is just as important as knowing what to do and where to look, right? So there's value on that side of it for us. And so after a a few months apart now, we have essentially reunited with our friend Solomon We've caught up with him up to, to this point in his, in his diary, and we are ready to see what's next. Are you ready to see what's next? Okay. Well, today we happen to catch Solomon in one of those rarer moments when he actually does look above the sun. And so as we re-engage the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm really glad that this is the place we get to start because it's kind of in an up place. It's not a down place. And he's going to offer up some really helpful instruction to us here. His topic of interest in the first seven verses of chapter 5, how we worship God. He wants to talk to us about that. It's verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. Perhaps Solomon was sitting on the porch of his palace in Jerusalem one day, and he's writing diary entries into this Ecclesiastes diary that he's keeping, and he just happens to gaze up, and his eyes fall on men and women who are making their way to the great temple in Jerusalem, to the house of God, where they're going to worship him. Now, that isn't in the text, but I'm just imagining in my mind that something must have prompted, besides the Holy Spirit, prompted Solomon to turn in this direction in this moment. And so he's looking at these people who are coming to the temple to worship. And this site may well have been the catalyst for Solomon as he here offers up some intensely practical advice to anyone who is about to approach God in worship but who would make the mistake of doing so casually or carelessly with indifference without recognizing who they are coming to worship. So listen with me as Solomon writes, and you will see instantly what I mean as I say this. Verse 1, chapter 5. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, 
nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger or the temple official that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one who must we must fear. And we'll stop right there. And may the Lord, by his spirit, bring some light and truth for us into this moment. This is one of those places in God's word that just kind of jolts you when you read it and read it carefully. It's one of those razor-sharp texts that seems to let us know that Hebrews 4, verse 12, is really, really true. Do you remember this verse out of the New Testament? Hebrews 4, 12, For the word of God is living and active, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, and joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We read this passage, these seven verses, and... Hebrews 4.12 actually comes into play because these words cut straight to the heart, straight to our hearts. I think that's going to happen this morning. These words are going to cut to the heart and challenge us to think through what we're doing, church family, when we come here, when we come here on a Sunday morning. It challenges each one of us to carefully consider this morning our our relationship with God, our, our view of God, our our perspective of him. And every now and then, no matter how devoted or sincere we may see ourselves in our spiritual life, we can all profit from a forced inspection, introspection, and self-examination, really that only the word of God can give. And so that's going to happen for us here in these moments. Solomon in seven verses says essentially two things. He sounds two alarms. He offers us two warnings as worshipers. What he says here is that we are to approach God in our worship with such reverence and with such awe and care that we mostly listen. And we say only what we most sincerely mean. We need to hear this and think about this together. His is a seven-verse, two-point sermon. And the message could not be more clear. No clever introductions or, or stories to get people on board. He goes straight to the point. I mean, he goes right there like a guided missile. He says, when you go to God's house, people, do what? Guard your steps. Church family, when we hear that, our eyes ought to get big and, and, and our ears ought to unplug and our, our hands may start to, to get a little bit sweaty in the palm and our, and our senses should be heightened because the Holy Spirit, he is talking directly to us. The fact that we are here in this 
worship context right now in what we would call God's house in our day and in our context, man, this moment means that we are the target audience today, aren't we? We can't get out from underneath that. We are in the bullseye of these seven verses. When you go to Idlewild Bible Church, watch your step. Be careful. Watch out. Be on your guard. Why? 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 Because we are coming to worship God. The one, the only God. We have come today, you and me, we are all here because we have come to worship God. I would ask you to say it with me. Say it out loud. We have come to worship God. Again, we have come to worship God. Again and louder, we have come to worship God. Are we getting that? That's why we are here. And it's why we must be careful. We have come to worship God. Elohim. God's name in scripture as the creator God. We have come to worship Yahweh. The I am, self-existing God. Adonai, the supreme, sovereign God. El Elyon, the most high God. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God. El Olam, the everlasting God. El Kanah, the jealous God. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord who provides. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord who is peace. Yahweh Nisi, the Lord who is my banner. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angel armies. Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord who is my shepherd. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals me. Yahweh Shema, the Lord who is always there. Yahweh Makodeshkim, the Lord who sanctifies. And Yahweh Sitkenu, the Lord who is our righteousness. Amen? We have come to worship God. And these are just some of his names as they appear in Scripture. Guard your steps. Be careful. Well, Solomon, you've got my attention. (laughs) I'm with you here. I'm focused now. I need to think very seriously about what I'm doing here right now in this room with this group of people because I am doing it with and before the God who is before all things, who is above all things, and to whom all things will answer. Let me ask you to keep a finger here in chapter 5 because we're going to come right back. But but if you'll turn two books to the right in your Bible and find the book of Isaiah with me, would you meet me in chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6. This passage I know because I know you, church family, this is a passage that will be familiar to many of us. 
It, pre- it, it presents to us Isaiah, uh, a young man, probably 20 to 25 years of age, whom God is calling to be his mouthpiece, to be his voice, to be his prophet at a time in Israel's history when her people are not taking God seriously at all. As a matter of fact, they are and have been for some time uh, treating God with with flippant casualness, with, with a careless commonness and an, and an unholy irreverence as a people, as a nation. Uh, they're doing things towards God that they would never ever dream of doing to an earthly king, but they're doing it to God. And so God calls Isaiah out of the nation. He says, I want you to be the voice, my voice to talk to this people. Interestingly, though, before God sends Isaiah into his prophetic role, he wishes to first give him a vision of himself. It's as if God says, I'm going to give you a little glimpse of me, Isaiah, and that will help you to better understand why you must call your people back. Because they've forgotten who I am. They've forgotten. And so in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In other words, Isaiah says, I saw a vision of God in heaven. Adonai, the word Lord there is Adonai, the supreme sovereign, was on his throne so high, so exalted, his kingly garments, which in those days were a, were a symbol of majesty and greatness, they don't just kind of flop off of the, th- of the, of the throne and onto the ground. Isaiah says the, the train of God's robe filled the entire temple, the, the entire sanctuary where God was. Just to give us a picture of the glory and majesty. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And we know these to be the angelic creatures that Isaiah saw, and they were uniquely created for this environment that they were in, an environment of unspeakable glory and holiness. And notice these angels have six wings again. Four of them were for the purpose of worship, and two are for the purpose of service as they hide their feet in their faces before the splendor of God, and they fly with the other two, hovering around the throne of God. And one called out, called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so they sing this one-sentence song over and over and over and back and forth antiphonally like in a concert. Back and forth, these angels are singing this three-word song, holy, 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 repeating this attribute of God, this supreme aspect of his nature. He is so, so holy. They can't look on God. They cover their createdness, their faces and their feet. And the foundations of the thresholds shook as the voice of him who called, at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. In other words, inanimate objects have the good sense to tremble in the presence 
of this three times holy God, even if men on earth are so foolish as not to do so. And what is Isaiah's reaction to this vision? And I said, verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He blurts out a cry of self-judgment, doesn't he? No one needs to tell him he's a sinful man. He knows it full well as he stands in the mere visionary holiness and majesty of God. This isn't even the real thing. This is a vision. This isn't the real thing. And he says, woe is me. I'm ruined. That's it. I'm done. I'm toast. That's Isaiah's encounter with Adonai, the supreme sovereign God of heaven and earth. No wonder as we go back now to Ecclesiastes 5 and you flip your little note page over, no wonder Solomon says, when you come to God's house to worship him, guard your steps. Is that good advice? Man, this is a serious thing that we're proposing to do when we come here today, church family. This is serious business. We're worshiping Adonai, the three times holy God. No wonder Solomon says, when you come to worship, boy, mostly just listen and let God talk to you. That is good advice. Verse 1 again, draw near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We can surmise that as Solomon observed the lives of the people living around him under the sun, it was clear that many were going to the temple in Jerusalem and they were just, they were just going through the motions. They were forgetting where they were and they were forgetting who they were. And most important, they were forgetting who God was. They were not holding God in an Isaiah 6 awe and reverence. They were forgetting that they were coming to a place specifically set aside for God's honor and worship. It was a place not about them. It was all about him. And that was lost to them. And they were forgetting who they were. Mere creatures, right? Of the dust. People whose very breath was only made possible because this holy, merciful God had poured out grace and life upon them. They forgot who they were. And they forgot what a privilege it was to come to God's house and give him undivided honor and praise. For them, it had apparently become an obligation, maybe a a, a duty, a a tradition, a social reconnecting time with friends. They forgot where they were. They forgot who they were. But most importantly, they forgot who God was. And Solomon pointedly brings out in the latter half of verse 2 
all of that saying, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Do not forget that. Guard your steps. Apparently there were lots of words. Lots of words. But not much worship. There was all the form of worship. But not much of the substance of worship. People were coming and they were singing all the great Hebrew worship songs and they were quoting all of the great, great worship scriptures out of the Psalms and reciting long, colorful, creative, pious-sounding prayers and using all of the tried and true religious expressions, all kinds of words. But there was no deep, penetrating sense of who they were doing this for. There was no reverence, no awe of holy God. Their mouths were in it, but not their minds and their hearts. Hear the words of Isaiah once again, fellow worshiper with me. This morning, this this out of Isaiah 29, 13. You've heard this verse, I know. He cries out to an irreverent, spiritually cold nation of Israel. And he says, the Lord says... This is God speaking. These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips. But what, church? Their hearts. Their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. In today's language, God would be saying, talk is cheap. Words are easy. Pious verbiage rolls off the tongue with little effort, but I have not been worshipped. Jesus will touch this very same nerve. Speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say this, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Words, says Jesus, they are no substitute for a life and a heart that knows who God really is. One who lives for and worships him rightly. Just because you say, Lord, Lord, doesn't get you into heaven. In verse 3, Solomon says that as surely as a person who has great worries will have fitful dreams at night. Just as surely, lots of words will signal the arrival of a shallow, foolish worshiper who has no clue as to the greatness of God and the smallness of themselves. That's verse 3. So guard your steps when you come to worship. Mostly listen to what God wants to say to you. That's great advice. And then in verses 4 to 7, Solomon says, "And, and when you do speak, In your worship time, when you do speak, be sure you say only what you most sincerely mean. Verse 4 again. And when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, this again would be the temple official, that it was a mistake, that I uttered a vow and oops, I shouldn't have done that. Don't go there. 
Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is worthlessness, vanity. But God is the one you must fear. You must reverence. So what is this all about, this whole vow thing? Sounds kind of foreign to us, doesn't it? Vows? It's actually pretty straightforward, not complicated. Vows were promises. Promises that people made to God as part of their worship of him. I will offer this to you, Lord. I'm going to dedicate this to you, Lord. I'm going to serve you in this way, Lord. Uh, I'm I'm going to do this as an expression of my gratitude, my devotion. I'm going to do, and then you just fill in the blank with whatever it is. That was a vow. Now, people made vows to each other, and they would often invoke God in the making of that vow. I swear to God that I will do this with you as we enter into this agreement, and I swear to God for that. But that's not what Solomon's talking about. He's not talking about those those thoughts. It's quite likely that Solomon is calling to mind the words of Moses, actually, out of the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23. If we were to turn there, here's what you would read. We'll put it up on the screen. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you'll not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. That's 21 to 23 of chapter 23 of Deuteronomy. In other words, vows are optional. No one requires you to make a vow to God, but when you do, when they are made, the one making the vow really needs to understand how high and holy God is. You need to understand that that you're making this commitment to the holy, holy, holy God of Isaiah 6. To make a vow to God and not fulfill it is to betray a small view of God. As if you could blow him off. Or just say, well, I really didn't mean it. Let's forget about that. No. That would reveal your your perception of God in your mind and in your heart. So Solomon, as he observes people making their way to the temple, is calling out anyone who's considering making a vow or a promise to God, but doing so carelessly, casually, because they're not really getting who God is. He takes our words very, very seriously. Church family, do we think about that? If we fast forward from Solomon's day to the time of Jesus, we come upon a moment when Jesus takes up this very same issue. By Jesus' time, though, Israel's religious leaders have completely distorted the law of Deuteronomy 23 and have devised a very elaborate scheme or process by which people could make vows and promises and then get out of them without it being a bad thing. The key was you didn't invoke God's name when you made the promise. 
You could make a promise, but if you didn't use God's name, well, then you could back out of it. That was how the, the, the law had degenerated by Jesus' time. And he has issues with this. Jesus takes this up in the Sermon on the Mount again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Here's what Jesus says. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn, what you have vowed. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Flows out of a sinful heart. So Jesus, what he's doing here is he's condemning the hypocrisy that used the twisting of God's word to enable people to lie. And he effectively says, it doesn't matter what you swear by, ultimately, because if you swear by something in heaven, God's, God's involved. And if you swear by something of the earth, well, God made that. And if you even swear by your own head, well, God made you. So all of it ties back to him. His call is for us as true followers of God to be so truthful that when we speak, we don't have to invoke God or something, heaven or earth or even ourselves to somehow lend strength to our promise. Our words should stand on their own because we would never speak less than the truth as a follower of God. That's the thought. A yes will be more than adequate, Jesus says. A no will be more than enough if you always speak the truth. It's a good word. No credibility gaps with you as a follower of God. A yes and a no is enough. So Jesus and Solomon are really on the same page here. Let there be no credibility gaps when you come to worship your God. Take God seriously because he takes what you say seriously. Worship him rightly and reverently and be in awe when you come. Listen mostly and say only what you really mean because he's listening and he takes you at your word. That's how we come to worship. This past Wednesday, I took Lisa to Ontario Airport so that she could spend some time with her 92-year-old physically failing mother in Albuquerque over this weekend. So she's, she's gone right now. When I pulled up to the Ontario terminal, I entered an area known as the loading and unloading zone. You familiar with this? Sure you are. There were several TSA uniformed workers and police officers in this area, and there were these signs all over telling you this was a no-parking, loading-only zone, and, and there were these loudspeakers in this area for all the, travels in the travelers in the area to be able to hear. And the loudspeaker was saying, as I got out to, to put Lisa's luggage on the, on the walk, 
This area is for loading and unloading only. This is a no parking zone. This area is for loading and unloading only. This is a no parking zone. And it went on and on and it goes on right this moment, day and night. That is what it is saying on this continuous loop. This area is for loading and unloading only. It is a no parking zone. I can't imagine having to work on that platform for eight hours every day. But the question is, do people listen? Do they listen? Well, we would say most people probably do. But you know, there's some who don't. There's some who totally disregard the message. They'll even leave their car unattended, which attracts very quickly no small number of, 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 of people. This no parking zone is not where you hang out. That's the point. You don't hang out here with your buds in the no parking zone. You don't carry on a running text with your BFF as you sit behind the wheel in your car in the no parking zone. You don't kick back and daydream and just catch a cat nap in that location. You are there for a very specific purpose and reason, and while you are there, you are to be all there. Fully there. No autopilot carelessness. No hanging out for a while in the no parking zone. It's for loading and unloading only. Now, as I dropped Lisa off and I pulled away from the curb, having heard this loudspeaker message now several times and seen the signs and all the uniformed personnel, knowing that we were going to be going here today in Ecclesiastes 5, I had a strange thought. I wondered, what would the merits be of having a continuous looping message coming out of a loudspeaker just outside the entrance of the doors here at IBC? I know it's weird. It's a preacher's thing. It just happened. I couldn't control it. And the message that would be playing as I thought this little scenario out was, this is the worship zone. It is for listening to God and speaking to him from the heart. No parking. This is a no parking zone. We are called upon here to be alert, to be careful, to be watching out because we are here to worship God. And so dare I ask you, fellow worshiper with me this morning, dare I ask how we came today to IBC to worship God? How did we come? Dare we reflect upon what the half hour looked like for us before the hands were at 9 o'clock? Do I ask us to think about what we were doing in the moments leading up to the start of a service this morning? Were we aware mentally and spiritually? Were we tuned into the fact that in just a moment we would be singing to the one before whom all the angels right now hide their faces and their feet and cry out, Holy, holy, holy. 
all of heaven bowing down. Did we consider this as we walked through the doors this morning and took our seats? I'm about to do this. Adonai, this is your time. And I am, I'm all in. I'm all yours in this moment. All of me. You've got me. Is this how it began for us? Or were we talking about the big game? Or adjusting our social calendar? Or thinking about lunch plans and, 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 and hoping maybe Tim wouldn't go too long? How did we come to this house today? Guarding our steps? How have we sung our songs today, church? Think about, think about your songs that you sang earlier. How did you sing, holy, holy, holy? How did you sing the lion and the lamb? And rejoice. And, and here I am to worship. How did you sing that? From here? Or from here? We don't want to be parked in a no-parking zone. And this is a no-parking zone. Yes? Did we come here today to hear God speak to us and to our fellow strugglers about the real issues of our relationship with Him and, and how we worship Him? Did we come to hear? Or did we ask Him to wait while we texted someone? Well, Tim talked because it was a really important message that needed to be texted right now. Did we drift off to our own plans and dreams and things we need to do today or this week? Parking in a no parking zone. Verse 7, once again, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us. Help us guard our steps when we go to the house of God, listening mostly and saying only what we truly mean. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for hiding a timely gem for us today in this Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. I'm guessing that most of us were not expecting you to speak to us quite this way today. But thank you. Thank you that you are so loving and so committed to us that you would not pull any punches. You'll tell us exactly what's on your heart. So thank you for that. May we, by the power of your spirit and the ongoing work of you, in our lives where you are seeking to conform us more and more into the likeness and character of Jesus. May you lead us, Heavenly Father, to worship of you that is good and right and honoring, worship that causes your heart to be glad. Oh, help us to be a people here at IBC to be a no-parking zone when it comes to worship of you. 
Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And God's people said, Amen and Amen. Would you stand with me?